What's up, guys? Welcome back to another episode of Behind the Facade. I'm your host, Gavin J. Gallagher, and on this podcast, I explore the mental and emotional game, often playing out subconsciously in your mind and the mind of everyone else in the real estate or property investment market. Key to success in this game is to master your mindset, your behavior, to get the control of your thought processes, your emotions, and most importantly, your ego. So here we are, guys, on episode 29. And in last week's episode, I was speaking with Mr. Duke Long from across the Atlantic over in New York City. And this week, I'm flying right back across the uh, the Atlantic and we're landing in London for a conversation on the flexible office with a chap called Adam Blasky. Now, before I go into that, I'm just going to give you a quick update. It's been a super busy week, and um, and so I'm recording this late Sunday night, which is the, the last thing that I want to be doing um, on a late Sunday night. But I have been preparing for, I have a conference in Helsinki, Finland this week, and um, it was supposed to be a nice uh, trip, a nice junket where I'd be expenses paid, staying in a nice hotel. Instead, it's virtual. So this is one of the negatives of the virtual world is that uh, I still have to do the speech, still have to prepare and I don't get any of the fancy stuff. So anyway, not to worry, I'm not complaining. Guys, if you want to join the uh, the Facebook group behind the facade community, it's um, it's there. It's a way of connecting with me directly if you have any stuff that you'd like to discuss. But um, let's get into the show, shall we? I'm going to um, I'm going to tell you just how I came to meet Adam back in 2012, I had just moved back from um, Doha. I was living in Doha, Qatar, and I was working with somebody over there that was kind of a member of the royal family. So lots of money, lots of things, stuff going on. It was an exciting place to work, but I wanted to get closer to home because I could feel that the market was kind of bouncing back. And so I moved to London. I rented a flat in a place called Winchester Street and Winchester Street is quite near to Victoria Station and um, anyway when I when I you know these flats are they're quite small they're not particularly large and stuff like that so I wanted to find somewhere that I could work every day that would give me this kind of sense of being in a real busy um, workplace right in the middle of all the action and so I'd heard about this place the clubhouse and I went over to have a look at it. It was over on a street called Grafton Street. And um, Grafton Street is just off Bond Street in London. It's right in the middle of, smack in the middle of all of the, the, the nicest shops. It's quite near to pretty much everything. You're, you're right in the middle of it all. And um, it was this fantastic office, really, really flash, um, very, very professional looking. And it had meeting rooms, it had desks, it had kind of lounge areas. It was just brilliant and it had phone booths that you could sort of sit in if you needed to do a private call it had coffee machines coffee was free and so i just said i gotta have this so i joined up and it was very reasonable price um considering you were, where you where the location was and um and that was the beginning of my uh, discovery of the, the the whole kind of co-working space and the flexible office space i worked in this place for about a year and during that time, I really, really enjoyed it. I mean, it was right in the middle of the action. You walk out the door and you're on Bond Street. And uh, anyway, this is the story today. I'm chatting with Adam. He's the founder and CEO, or he was uh, the founder and CEO of 
Clubhouse London. He built the business up to four locations over about seven years, and then he sold the business to IWG. IWG is the international group that owns Regis, which is the uh, the flex office providers. So we're going to hear Adam's story of building it up and selling it off and the business that he has since gone into now. So without further ado, Mr. Adam Blasky. All right, Adam Blasky. Good to see you, Adam. It's long, been a long time. And um, I just wanted to uh, welcome you into uh, Behind the Facade and uh, looking forward to our conversation today. Yeah, thanks, Gavin. Likewise, it, it has been a long time. We first met each other a number of years ago. Uh, and it's great to reconnect. Yeah, it is. It's good to connect. I um, I just uh, as I'm going to paint a picture for um, for our listeners. Um, I was in I was living in London back in 2012, and I remember coming across this this cool co working place called the Clubhouse. And I can remember somebody else actually told me about it and said, "Gavin, you've definitely got to go and check that place out." So checked it out, became a member. I think I spent like every single day in there for, for a good couple of months. Um, I was one of those guys that would arrive at eight o'clock in the morning so that I got my table <laughs> and I would set up for the day and that was it. I wasn't moving off. Um, but uh, just for the people, for the benefit of people who don't know you or don't know the clubhouse, um, Adam, let's, let's just begin with a little bit of, on your backstory. Um, paint us a picture, if you will, of your upbringing. Whereabouts uh, in the UK are you from originally and um, take us through, you know, your early career, you know, where did you go to college, things like that? Sure, yeah, so I was, uh, I was born in Sheffield, um, uh, I then went to school in, in the Midlands, uh, university in Birmingham, uh, so I went to Aston University and did a, an international business degree, um, and I was always fairly bus- business-minded um, from an early age, so I did business studies, economics and French A-levels, went and did an international business degree, uh, worked in uh, in France. In fact, France was uh, the first place I ever worked after graduating, having gone to a business school in, in Paris for a while, um, and then uh, then came came to London. Right. Uh, okay. And how did, did that did that provide you any kind of assistance with um, what you kind of uh, got stuck into then the property business and um, creating your own? Yeah, I think it probably helped, and dare I say, hindered in a slight way. Uh, you know, at the same time, so it helped certainly. It gave me a fantastic grounding in all the different aspects of uh, business, whether it's you know organisation, HR, marketing, finance, whatever it may be. Uh, but when you come out with such a balanced um, view, actually deciding which career you want to go in is you know is, is not quite as easy. It's not as if I'd studied medicine and wanted to be a doctor, for example, um, yeah. or accountant to to be, become an accountant. So I always knew I wanted to to, to do my own thing. Um, working for a large organization was never really my calling. You know, I want to wake, wake up and make my own decisions to, to a degree. And actually, that, that really proved itself. So my first job was actually at UBS in the city as, as an equity sales trader, which, you know, when you were young, fresh out of university, was a, a brilliant place to work. Uh, but equally, you know, I, I thought pretty quickly, hey, I'm not suited to a, a, you know, to a large organization, a large corporate ladder that I that I had to climb and I want to work you know in, a, in an entrepreneurial way where I can uh, make my own decisions and you know innovate and, uh, and try new things. Interesting yeah and so how long did you spend in the big corporate before you branched out on your own? Well not not really that long um, so I was at UBS for a couple of years which was a great place to be um, you know at the turn of the millennium um, and a great place to really witness cycles, I suppose, because that was, you know, the, the, the dot-com boom that we all remember and we all 
I remember what followed afterwards. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it's a great grounding uh, in understanding that, you know, the big wide world and, and the influences um, that, that happen. Um, and actually, it was during that time that I spotted a, a gap, I suppose, in, in the real estate market. And that was the kind of the dawn of, um, I suppose, uh, prime uh, central London development. Um, so I kind of fell from banking into residential development, uh, really at the kind of you know, early, early noughties, uh, as people were taking kind of branding and design into residential property in a way that just hadn't been done before. Yeah, this would be kind of like, um, I suppose the, the big example would be the candies or something like that. The, um, the kind of reputation they built for themselves around luxury and the whole brand and everything. Yeah, absolutely. They, they were, you know, probably the, the first real name to add that brand and, and leverage up the, the, the layers of value. Um, and it's interesting, uh, it's probably risky to, to draw parallels, but there was always a couple of big names that drive every sector. Whether they have any longevity is, is a different thing. But, you know, you look in the prime central London real estate uh, and actually they expanded all, all over the world. But, yeah, the candies were certainly at the forefront of that. Um, dare I say, in, in the way that um, Adam Newman and WeWork uh, was in the flex space sector. Yeah, yeah. You have to be careful with those parallels, all right? The um, I was going to say, is there any were there any particular um, influences on you during that sort of stage of your career? And uh, I mean, what if if anything stands out as a, a major influence? Um, I think you know, dare I say, when I was younger, probably the stereotypical names like Richard Branson uh, was always an influence. You know, just his attitude to try different things, and particularly in different sectors. Uh, and that mindset of, of, of never giving up um, and recognizing you can try things in certain sectors, it might not translate to others, but that, that was certainly uh, was certainly an influence. Um, when I was young and impressionable in, in property, I might have read some of Donald Trump's books, but I wouldn't uh, necessarily advocate those now. Jeez, I think I, gotta, I actually follow you in that. Uh, I'm almost too guilty to say it, like, but uh, I bought the, when I was like a teenager, I think it was, I got Art of the Deal and... Uh, thought this was a great book, you know, kind of a young, impressionable kind of teenager, wonderful learning from it. And now when you look at it now, you just kind of go, oh, my God, head and head in, in the hand, kind of wondering, what were you thinking? If you can pick up snippets from people along the way, you don't have to admire their whole career. But if you can pick up snippets, I think it's really, really important. And I think, you know, the word that I certainly learned from Donald Trump was tenacity. And I think in any form of real estate, in any form of, you know, I don't particularly like the word entrepreneur, but running your own business, um, you have to have that degree, in, degree of optimism in the way that Richard Branson did and maybe the degree of tenacity that uh, you know, Trump advocated. Yeah, it's true. And so tell us, when you were in the residential, the upper end, uh, uh, when did that kind of um, peter out? Was it around about the time of the crash that you, that you kind of, like most of us, we kind of started to kind of look at different directions? Um, well, not, not so much. As I said, I kind of fell into it after my uh, banking days, really by spotting, um, I was living in London at the time, there was a probate sale that came up on the road that I lived on at the time. I thought, well, hold on, there's a bit of value between the house that I'm living in and, and, and that. So that was the, the, the first one. And I suppose I had a knack for spotting some space uh, and being able to, you know, to have some creativity and some vision as to seeing what it may, may look like. Um, so that was a starting point and we from, went from there to some uh, much larger buildings in, in prime central London. Uh, and I did a number of projects for overseas investors, Middle Eastern investors, Far Eastern investors. Um, but actually what slowly happened, and, and less to do with the financial crisis actually, um, but what really happened was that 
definition of the market changed. So that definition of prime central London, where you could pretty much, I think print money is the wrong, the wrong thing to say, but it was a very tight geography and it was a simple supply and demand imbalance. There was a huge demand for uh, very well thought out residential developments and not very much supply of it. You know, there isn't much space in prime central London, but actually the market changed Yes, debt became harder to, uh, to get hold of after the financial crisis, but in its place, um, you know, financial innovation came. There was enough mezzanine lending, uh, and there, were, there was, you know, if you wanted to develop, there was definitely ways of getting money. But I think the ability to get that premium in the way that you could previously, as, you know, 1,000, 2,000 pounds a square foot without being achieved, not just in, you know, the prime areas of Kensington and Chelsea, but, you know, south of the river, east towards Shoreditch. So it became a very different marketplace with, uh, you know, with very, you know, a different number of players. So whilst maybe the candies and some of the boutique developers were at the forefront, you know, it was very quick that the, the behemoths like, you know, the Barclay Group and the big house builders actually followed suit because they realised that they had this business that was going fairly well, but they had to adapt to survive because their quality was being forced up by these, by these new entrants. Um, and I think there is a direct parallel between what's happening between residential and what's happening in the commercial real estate world. Mm, that's very interesting. Yeah, good insight. Um, so tell us, uh, when, when did the, uh, you know, the, the clubhouse itself, I mean, what was the transition between what you were doing and then kind of getting it into your head that this was an opportunity that you were going to pursue? Yeah, so from my, my, from my development days, you know, I built up a, a fantastic network uh, of, of contacts. And then in around, well, 2008, after the financial crisis, um, a lot of the professionals that I was working with um, in property, uh, in banking, you know, left the large organizations. So whether it was project managers and cost consultants, whether it was agents, you know, left large organizations because overnight they realized that they perhaps weren't going to be compensated in the same way. They weren't going to be paid the big bonuses that they'd had in 2006, 7, uh, and probably thought, you know, we don't have much visibility over the next few years. It's going to be tough going. Um, and any professional who's built up a concept book can effectively, you know, jump ship and, uh, and work for themselves. But almost, you know, coincidentally, um, at the time of the financial crisis was the same time that the iPhone came about and the same time that the iPad came about. And actually, the iPhone uh, first came to market in 2007. Uh, Dropbox was launched in 2007. The iPad came a couple of years later in 2010. So it was these remote technologies that allowed people to work differently. And so a lot of people that I was uh, starting to work with, you know, we were meeting in hotel lobbies and coffee shops and clubs in the, the nicer parts of central London. Uh, the Mayfair area is typically a kind of heavy property centric area. Um, and I was seeing all these people and having all these meetings. And I thought, you know, if I'm going to grow my business, if I'm going to win clients, potentially look for investment, maybe, you know, meeting the Starbucks uh, is probably not the best place to, to do it. Um, so hotel lobbies, coffee shops, you know, weren't necessarily the, the right thing for me five days a week. Uh, no one had heard, you know, the words we work or the word co-working uh, back in kind of 2010, 11, 12. Um, and I didn't need a service office five days a week. But what I did need is something that filled that gap. So the need was, you know, my own really. I saw lots of people that had the same need. And so we came up with a concept that filled that gap, uh, really. Um, find some, found some space to, to test the model. Uh, on Grafton Street back in 2012, which is where we opened the, the, the first clubhouse. And it's where, where we met for the first time. 
Yeah, exactly. I just, I'm going to clarify for, because we have an Irish audience here. And when you say Grafton Street, it, uh, it, it means something very different here in Ireland. So Grafton Street, by, what, by that you mean the, the location kind of halfway between New Bond Street and Old Bond Street, basically. Um, yeah, and, and, and equally, it's not the same Grafton Street that Ed Sheeran sang about either. <laughs> yeah, which is the Irish one, I think. <laughs> so, um, well, and tell us, uh, I mean, so you built a pilot um, on Grafton Street. And um, what, how did you kind of go about structuring that um, from the outset? Was it a short, it was a short-term lease left in, a, in an office in a commercial building? Yeah, we, we got a short-term lease. Um, there was a, a previous tenant uh, that ran into a bit of difficulty. So we were able to get a, a short-term lease. Um, we had a landlord that was prepared to, to, to back the concept. And, and we, we went from there. You know, I had residential property experience. We took a lot of the design uh, from the residential world and the hospitality world to commercial for the first time. It hadn't really been done at, at that point. And it was really an idea that we, um, you know, that we evolved. But like the best things, it, uh, it cost more and took a lot longer. Yeah, like everything. It's funny you say that. It's one thing that really stood out for me when I walked into the clubhouse the first time was the quality of the design. And so, you know, kudos to you. Um, tell me, in terms of building a brand around it, uh, I mean, obviously you had the location. How did you go about creating a brand from, from, from starting at zero with the name Clubhouse? Well, there are a number of different elements. You know, the, the design that you touched on, and, and thanks, for, thanks for the compliments there, but I took the same approach as I did in, in residential. You know, any property development that I did in residential days, I had to be happy to, to, to live there. And, you know, I've got fairly, fairly high standards, and I thought that if I took that approach, um, you know, at the end of the day, it's a, it's a great way of attracting other people. Um, so it's got to be a very high quality uh, product. Generally, you know, if, if things uh, start to get tough, it's the ones at the top end of the value chain or the bottom end that do very well. The squeeze middle kind of lose their identity. So we wanted to be premium. Uh, it was a premium part of London. Uh, and we wanted to you know, take those elements from hospitality where people were meeting, you know, clubs and, and hotels. So it wouldn't be foreign, but also take the elements of, of an office environment and really thinking about all of the different ways uh, and different types of work that people do and zoning the zoning effectively an open plan area through design and layout of different types of furniture. So whether it's soft seating for more collaborative setups, um, hot desks, you know, for work between meetings uh, or just, you know, to get out of the home office um, and then boardrooms and, and meeting rooms for whether it's strategy days, board meetings, investor presentations um, and, and that kind of thing. And the branding was, was, was really important because I didn't want to come up with something gimmicky. I didn't want to invent a word, but I wanted to evoke quality and I wanted to evoke the kind of neutral ground, that kind of third space that, that, that we were. And obviously, you know, the clubhouse is very well known in the golf, uh, in golf terms. Um, and it seemed to work very well uh, as a kind of neutral um, premium proposition uh, for what we were looking to do. Uh, you did you did a great job at it, and to be fair to you, um, I was just going to ask you uh, if if you're happy to kind of share. Were there any early stumbles and challenges that uh, you're happy to share? That kind of just to kind of pass on the learning from those uh, from those well, mistakes. A lot. Uh, a lot. I mean, you know, it, it's it's no secret that the um, acquisition by IWG last summer was not perhaps in the way that I wanted it to go, but, you know, we're very proud of the business that we built, and I'm sure it'll do very well um, on the IWG platform. In fact, we were talking to them for a number of years, and I got to know Mark Dixon quite well uh, ahead of that. Um, but look, you know, in any innovative concept, things take longer, they, 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 they cost more. 
Um, and I think you know one of the big reasons that the flexible real estate world is is going so quickly at the moment is because the pace of change is uh, you know rapidly accelerating. Uh, companies have grown faster than ever before, but you know leases are, are somewhat inflexible. You know, so we were at the, the kind of dawn of this new, new way of working. You know, we'd take a lease, uh, we'd agree a rent-free period, we'd model how long it would take to fill up our spaces, but it actually doesn't take too much for things to go long wrong. You know, if the lawyer's taken another few weeks to complete the lease, if it takes another week or month for uh, tenders to come back, delays on site, you know, these things can all stack up. So it's very, very tricky. Um, and, you know, there are a number of operators innovating and, and growth was what I think a lot of people were going for. Um, and I think, you know, a lot of people are certainly following on the, on the, on the WeWork tales to, to, to grow and, uh, and scale. And, and that's what we were looking to do. And, um, and so, yeah, I, I can totally relate to the, the fact that you, you're, you're dependent on solicitors and on contractors and designers and all of these different people to kind of deliver in a timely fashion. And you've got a rent-free that's kind of running out of steam pretty quickly. How did you go about customer acquisition and like getting people in the door once you did open? Was that an advance? Was that something that you were working on well in advance of it? And, um, and how did you go about building that community? Um, so slow, slowly but surely at, at, at the start, you know, it was always a case of building something that had a really quality offering with fantastic levels of service and the kind of service you'd expect in, you know, the, the best hotels. Because we knew that if people felt looked after, if they felt that, that was the right environment for them, uh, word of mouth would, would, would spread. So the, the best form of customer acquisition was getting people in, having meetings, and then for every person that, in, that came in and met someone in the clubhouse, uh, quite often they they join, so it was definitely a kind of member get member model, and then slowly but surely we we grew from there. And then when you went, and I, I remember um, you, I think you opened in Grosvenor Hill. Would that be right? Um, that yeah, was that, the second. That, that was the second one. In fact, we'd run out of space on on Grafton Street. You know, I remember. I remember. Yeah. We actually had people sitting on the floors on their laptops because we we run out of space, and then it was really important to understand how people use that space, what their usage profiles were like. And that's where, the, I'm sure we'll come on to talk about this in a, in a few minutes, where the technology in running these um, platforms is, is really important because you have to know exactly how people use that space, what the occupancy of your meeting rooms is, you know, it goes without saying, but actually how people occupy a hot desk uh, is equally important. So it's about getting that right configuration space. Uh, we got it pretty much right, actually. You know, we've got more or less everything right uh, in the first site, we just didn't have enough space. So we took a, uh, an overflow site in Grosvenor Hill, which we opened in 2014. Um, and that was brilliant to learn how to operate, you know, the, the, the start of a multi-site operation. And what size was that? Uh, so Gro uh, Grafton Street was uh, only 8,000 square feet, followed by 6,000 at, uh, at Grosvenor Hill. Uh, but then we realized the sweet spot was really between 10 to 12,500 square feet. Uh, so when we opened down St. James's Square, um, in 2016, that was 12,500 square feet, uh, and the others that followed were of a, a similar size, and that was a, the sweet spot that really worked, uh, because much greater than we thought that the levels of service that people really wanted, we might be able to deliver. Right, okay, yeah. It's, it's, it's finding that sweet spot's a difficult one, all right, when you're starting, because it's, it's such a fixed thing, real estate. Like, you, you take 6,000 or 8,000 square feet, and that's it. You've now got a lease, and you've got to make it work whether or not you've actually found the sweet spot or not. And uh, that's the struggle, isn't it? Um, trying to figure that out in advance of signing off on the lease. 
And so tell so you you've exited the clubhouse and you have um, decided to kind of go and did you did you take time trying to figure out what the next move was or did you immediately kind of have that plan sort of laid out? Yeah, so you know, as I was saying, the our market has has evolved. You know, the service office industry isn't isn't particularly uh, new in it. You know, in its sense. Um, in fact, looking at some research um, earlier on, I think you know the first brand in the service office or flex space sector was was something called Omni Offices back in 1962 um, that became part of um, HQ, which is now part of IWG. And then you've got brands like Servcore and Lenter and Office Space in Town, which came along in, in the 70s. Uh, but you know, fast forward, and, and the world is a very very different place. So um, I was. Uh, quickly approached actually by several of my former competitors um, after the deal went, went through. Some I knew, some I, some I didn't know, um, but they were very keen um, to, to get me in, which was, you know, I was flattered uh, by and, and, and it was amazing to be given the opportunity to go into other businesses and really be able to get my head under the bonnet, if you like. Um, and I quickly realized that, you know, most operators were still facing the same challenges, whether it was around uh, you know, the identity and what they were really offering, uh, but really, again, kind of seamlessly uh, matching the customer journey and customer experience that they wanted to deliver to their clients with the processes that they uh, had implemented, because this is a new industry, you know, and its current shape, although it dates back to the 60s, in the kind of co-working flex movement, which really only started, you know, post the global financial crisis in 2008, um, it was evolving rapidly. So, you know, there's no rule book uh, for this. There's no piece of technology that delivers this. It had grown organically and became quickly an important subset of what is effectively the world's oldest industry, I think, real estate. Um, so, yeah, I was approached by several uh, several people I knew uh, and given the opportunities to go and go and look and advise and, uh, and, and see what was happening. And so that's what, how it came about that your business kind of just, you, the opportunities were just there to start advising. And so you've created a business that yeah, and there, there, so there's a few angles with Productive um, and Productive Partners. So we launched just over a year ago um, and Productive, it, it's called that for a simple reason, uh, that one of the things I've been thinking about quite heavily over, you know, the last three or four years is why is it that with, you know, some of the fastest pace of change and the innovation and growth that we've seen over the last decade, particularly in terms of technology, why have developed economies stagnated in terms of their productivity growth? You know, productivity is just not caught up. And in, you know, growing a business like the Clubhouse and, uh, and scaling it up, there's so many different challenges. And I think technology has been brilliant, but you know, we're faced with a piece of software that does this, an app that does that, a sensor that does that. And I think the last 10 years were kind of tech overload for many people. You know, as, as humans, our human brains, you know, haven't really changed in millennia, but yet we've been forced to multitask and constantly check whatever's flashing up on our phone. So, you know, in, in a way, what, what we've gone through in terms of um, coronavirus and the kind of the great reset, if you like, I think has been, you know, fantastic for all of us because it's, it's allowed us all to kind of take stock as we're at the kind of dawn of the fourth industrial revolution and really think about technology and what technology is going to be important to help us grow uh, and what technology isn't. Yeah, it's um, it's a tough one. I can remember reading about WeWork that the that um, Adam Newman was big into the the whole use of technology and um, how space was used and stuff. So it very much kind of reflects what you're talking about there. One of the big, I mean, I'm a big um, 
proponent of innovation and technology and real estate and stuff. I just believe that it's an industry that's been doing the very same thing for hundreds of years. If you took a builder from a hundred years ago and brought him into a building site, a house building site today, I mean, he wouldn't be scratching his head wondering what people are doing. It would pretty much look the very same as it did like a hundred years ago. You know, you've got bricklayers over there. You've got guys laying, you know, the, the foundations over there. It's not changed that much, whereas banking is like a completely different, you know, thing nowadays. And, um, and so, I mean, I'm curious to know what, um, what your view is on the workplace of the future. I mean, wh- what are the trends that you see kind of emerging in the market now. Yeah, so in fact, just picking up on, on what you said about, you know, builders of 100 years ago, I've always been massively impressed about the, the quality and the scale at which the Victorians built houses, particularly yeah. in London. You know, the attention to detail, whether it's brickwork or cornice work inside, and the quantity in which they produce them is, is phenomenal. And we probably couldn't, couldn't do that today. So the real estate sector has had its head in the sand, you know, for, for far too long. And I think actually we're at the dawn of something very exciting. You know, so in terms of the co-working world, it's probably going through change. You know, what I call kind of co-working 1.0 was the, you know, the, the, the co-workers all in, you know, the early iterations of, of, of WeWork. Uh, and that was the, again, the kind of lease arbitrage model, uh, which is slowly evolving and, and moving on because landlords didn't get it. They didn't really understand it, but some innovators and pioneers came along and had no option but to rent space in a traditional way and divide it up. And as I said, it's not brilliant because things can go wrong and, and, and take as we've off. seen. Yeah. And actually, if you think about it, you're adding most of the value to the property which you don't own. So it's completely wrong. Um, you know, let's say you want to make a 20 or 25% margin. That means that 75 or 80% of your value is going to the landlord. Now that doesn't make doesn't make sense. So fast forward a few years, and we're starting to see this. We started to see this a couple of years ago, but landlords really want to get uh, you know get their heads around this. And you start to see a lot more partnerships come in between landlords and, and partnerships. So that's kind of co-working 2.0 or flex 1.0. We don't really call it co-working anymore. It's the flex sector. And I just wonder how long that will be around for. I think it's probably got a couple of years before you know, the landlords start to take control again. Uh, and that's because we are at, you know, as I said, the dawn of um, the fourth industrial re- revolution. I think it's an amazing time for prop tech. Uh, we've all understood what fintech is. You know, we've got, um, whether it's, you know, uh, new banking apps on our phones or whatever it is, but the fintech uh, has been revolutionary uh, for how we, how we live our lives today. And I think that's now starting to happen with, uh, with, with prop tech. And prop tech is... An incredible sector. The technology has been there for a few years, but actually we haven't really understood the, the benefits. Um, and it's by harnessing, I think, a lot of the data uh, through platforms like the one that we built specifically for the flex space sector uh, is really bringing um, prop tech to the fore. But also, coronavirus has had, you know, brilliant. Um, so if they say every pound has has a silver lining, what coronavirus has been able to do for the property sector, moving beyond the fact that a lot of commercial buildings are empty at the moment, but we know that's going to be temporary is people are realizing that, you know, CO2 levels have a direct impact on the productivity of people occupying those buildings. So we're starting to think more and more that a building is not just an office where people go five days a week, but it's a building is a productivity solution. An office is a productivity solution, and therefore an inherent part of the, the value chain of the occupier. So we've got to understand a lot more about what that occupier does, what's the business it's in, what's it selling, producing, whatever, and how that uh, 
um, office space forms, uh, forms part of it. So I think we're at a really major inflection point where people are wanting to understand more about the quality of the air they breathe, the benefits that biophilia within workspace brings. Um, and part and parcel of that is, is prop tech. So whether it's sensors that can monitor air quality or occupancy rates um, and provide that real-time data um, to those people that are providing space as a service. And the thing that always you know, confuses the, the hell out of me is you, you get into a car, you, you either turn the key or push a button and the whole dashboard of lights comes up and it tells you, you know, what the temperature is, how much fuel's in the tank. You set off and you can see how fast you're going. But there are buildings that welcome 5, 10, 20,000 people a day that have no idea how many people are walking through the doors. Yeah. They might have BMS systems, but chances are the BMS systems only looked at when somebody complains that the air conditioning has gone down. And how's that to, you know, to, to run a building? So starting to use sensors and BMS systems and, and really visible data, bringing all of those different data points together through kind of one, in, in tech speakers, one kind of source of truth or one single pane of glass, uh, I think creates a, a huge opportunity for the, for the property industry. Yeah, it's funny you were saying that because, uh, I mean, the way I look upon the workplace, obviously, my, the business park that I look after, we have about 1.5 million square feet. And so I'm used to seeing thousands of people coming in and how they use buildings and stuff. And prior to COVID-19, I could see that there was a huge push towards sustainability. There was a push towards wellness as well. And so I would have thought that the two major, you know, the major things that people were concentrating on were sustainability and wellness. Um, after that, there, there was a kind of a distant one was, was flex. Now that we've gone through COVID, it seems like flex is taking more of a, a prominent sort of role in it. But I do think that wellness and sustainability are still going to be way up there in terms of importance. And I, my view is that COVID-19 has actually taught us that the, the warnings that we've been getting from scientists for the last 20 years about this is coming, this is coming, this is coming, and we all ignore it until it's too late. And, you know, there were warnings about, uh, you know, a respiratory flu-like kind of thing happening on the earth and us getting impacted by it. And we all ignored it until we now see the cost of it. And so I think people are now waking up and saying, hold on, maybe we should think about what these scientists have been saying for the last 20 years and mm. actually pay some attention to this, you know, because I do think that that's where we're heading. Are there any outside of those kind of three um, categories, where else would you say, have you noticed any particular uh, interest from clients and uh, focus? Oh, there's, there's a lot there and it's a big subject. And I think, you know, I remember when we started t taking buildings and, you know, I was looking at the marketing material of the building that said it's Briam certified. And I was like, is this important to me? At, at that point, you know, it's important to the landlord because they, they can tick a box and it looks great on, on marketing material. But I think there was a bit of a disconnect between uh, Briam and the occupier um, because, you know, environmental and sustainability probably wasn't at the forefront of people's minds in the way that it is uh, now. And so that, you know, environmental um, and sustainability has obviously developed, you know, ESG in itself is a, is a, is a big movement. And in terms of wellness, um, you know, people's mental health and well-being has also been something that's been talked about, particularly over the last couple of years in a way that it's never been before. And actually replacing RIAM in, in a sense was the well building certification. Um, yeah. I think is, it is brilliant. But 
for many people, I, again, there was this disconnect between, okay, that, that's, but what does it mean for me? What does it mean for me as an individual occupier? Not the person that signs the lease, but for the hundreds of thousands of people that, that work in that building. And so it's only through uh, and a big event like coronavirus, this kind of faceless enemy, which we're now trying to understand, which suddenly people are thinking more about the quality of the air that they breathe in, in a completely different way. So that's been uh, good in terms of shining the light back on, you know, 3M as, from a sustainability point of view and well from a, a well-being uh, perspective. Um, but in, in, in terms of flex, you know, that was just on the way up uh, as it was, you know, most of the big real estate agents were pointing to the fact that flex, you know, I think accounted for about 6% of central London office stock and probably the same in big metropolitan cities like New York, but 6% of office stock, you know, prior to COVID and the, the ranges of forecast were somewhere between 25 and 30% of office stock by the end of the decade. That's only accelerated. Um, so sure. we're going to see that much, much sooner. So there's definitely been an acceleration towards uh, buildings that are better supportive of our well-being, better supportive of the environment and better supportive of, of, of the way we work. Um, but I think that's something that was already starting to happen. It's just been, uh, you know, a big acceleration. In terms of just to put the um, to put the argument on the other side for for a moment, just um, I mean, you know, a lot of the a lot of the stuff that I read about when it, when we talk about say the the collapse of the IPO for WeWork, and um, a lot of people were coming out and saying, you know, that these guys it's the mismatched periods. You've got you know guys have gone and signed fifteen year leases, but they've only got commitments from their members of you know a month or whatever it is. And you've obviously been through this with your clubhouse and um, how, you know, in terms of from a, from a purely, you know, landlord or an investor property investment point of view, I can kind of see the, that, that argument, you know, I can see how, yeah, you know, it doesn't seem to make a lot of sense that somebody all, you know, as soon as COVID hits, the flex office just empties and people have canceled all of their memberships and stuff like that. Um, and then, whereas if you've got a long lease of a 15 year lease to multinational or something like that, they're still paying the rent, even though the building might be empty. So what are your arguments, uh, you know, against that argument? Um, having been in the seat where you were, you were the operator and, um, and how would you kind of counter that argument? Yeah, I'm not sure if that's if that's completely the case. Um, you know, there are shops on the high street that are empty. There are department stores that are empty. There are offices up and down the country that are empty, but actually the flex sector, the co-working sector has performed much better than many people thought. Um, obviously there was a big panic, you know, back in March, April when, when lockdown came in and a few people were, you know, canceling their memberships. But after that panic was out there, most of the operators that, that I'm working with probably are at 70% of where they were, which is pretty, pretty good. Considering the number of businesses that have, um, you know, got, got, well, gone out of business, um, you know, 70% is a pretty good level to be at, given everything that, that's happening in the world. And because they can offer a range of flexible solutions, they've been able to show that flexibility uh, to, to a landlord. Whereas uh, I've been working with some corporate occupiers who've given up their leases, whether they were coming close to a lease event or, or just took the opportunity, but they've gone into flex because nobody knows how long this is going to go on for. They've got out of a, of a long lease that they're, their guys weren't actually using and they've taken a much more agile approach to, to working. So, you know, this has um, started to paint a great picture for the sector. 
Yeah, no, I'd, <clears throat> I'd agree with that. I certainly, I've seen a shift towards the agile workplace, even with the multinationals. And they're starting to use you know, technology that allows them to hot desk with staff working from home. And we've even had situations where I've been telling certain occupiers that they should be looking at the agile workplace because they have policies in place where staff are coming in whenever, whenever they want and you know, work from home whenever they want. And yet they have a fixed desk in their, in their office. So when they come in, they expect their desk to be there with their, you know, with their chest of drawers and everything where they left it. And yet they can go home for three or four days and not come in and everything is meant to be just left there. Whereas the sense of agile working is, is that, you know, that desk begins clear and the next person can come along and you can end up with three times the number of staff working in, an, in a location of the same size. Well, as I said before, you know, this shift was happening pre, pre-COVID. You know, you just look at the decline in uh, typical lease lengths uh, over the last decade, you know, long gone are the 15 to 20 year leases that, you know, pension funds who are typically the, you know, developers of a lot of office buildings, you know, relied on. That is just not there. The typical lease length um, is, you know, hovering around four and a half years, five years, I think. And that's because companies are growing at such a fast rate than before, fueled by technology. Um, you know, if a company cannot predict what its headcount is going to be in two years' time, then there's no way it can take a, a, a long lease. So, you know, the traditional model has been going out the window for, for some time. Uh, and in its place comes a flexible, agile solution that, you know, in boom times you can expand and in leaner times you can, you can contract. And there's always people to, to fill those gaps, you know, companies of different shapes and sizes. You know, what I always liked about my, my old business is that um, we weren't putting all of our eggs in one basket. There were different levers to pull. So whether that's office space or meeting rooms or memberships or virtual office solutions, um, you could always pull uh, di- different levers. Uh, and in fact, a lot of the advisory work that I'm doing at the moment is around those levers and particularly the secondary revenue streams, which are growing in importance. So it's not just about office space, it's around memberships. And a typical occupier now might previously have taken an office for 20 people, but they're probably now going to take an office for a dozen people and have eight memberships alongside that. Because as we know from the kind of corporate approach to agile workspace, 100% of people aren't in the office all the time. And way before this, you know, maybe they've made allowances for deaths for 70% of of people. And that we're seeing, you know, is certainly uh, the, the case now where, you know, people are looking at a kind of a toolbox of workplace solutions, whether it's meeting rooms, memberships, virtual office solutions, uh, whether it's a work from home or work near home solution. And I was reading, I was reading the other day, you know, there's been quite a bit of debate about work from home, work from near home, uh, yeah. and, and so on. And there's actually seven different combinations uh, of work. Wow. So, you know, you can, you, can, you, know, you can work in your HQ some of the time, you can work from home the rest of the time. Or maybe you work in the HQ a couple of days a week and work near home, you know, in flexible workspace on a kind of hub and spoke basis. And then there's people that won't go to the office. They'll spend some time at home and some time near home. But then you will have the diehards that want to be in the office five days a week. You'll have people that don't want to be in the office, nor that they want to work at home, so they work near home. And then you'll have the flip side, which is only the people that work from home. So I know that's confusing, but there are seven different combinations of uh, of work so it, yeah it's all going to boil down to your tenant selection really i think because um i've been talking i've been having conversations with a number of the occupiers in um, in my business park and one of the things that i learned um, and they're very sort of outspoken about it is that um there would be no work from home from any kind of professional uh, outfits because 
they, you know, for example, engineering companies or architectural firms and solicitors and stuff, so much of their um, business is de dependent on training the graduates that that cannot happen at home. They need to be exposed to, to the older, sort of more experienced um, professionals in the floor. And, you know, just by sitting at a desk and overhearing your boss having a kind of an argument on the, t on the phone with another lawyer or whatever it is, that you pick up the nuances and stuff like that. And that's key to the education of the professional. Whereas there are obviously a lot of businesses out there that have more of a, I suppose, an administrative role where the, you know, sitting at home on a computer is just as effective as sitting in the office on the computer. And so it's going to be tenant selection. And then as you mentioned about the, the, the growth, that's something as well that I've seen in, in some of the buildings that, that I look after, we have got tenants who are growing rapidly and they need space all of the time. But there's a lot of other tenants that are have a quite stagnant uh, headcount and, um, and they don't really grow by much. So, you know, I suppose it would depend on your uh, the type of business that you're signing up for a lease. If you've got somebody who's kind of a long established business that provides kind of a service to somebody and they're not one of these rapidly growing technology companies, then you're, the likelihood is they'll be happy enough with a, a long-term lease um, because they don't see their headcount projections kind of jumping massively like a technology company would. And I think that that's important to realize, you know, not everyone is the same. All companies are different. The types of work we are doing are, are, are different. Uh, we're in an era where you've got so many different generations with different demands in, in a workspace that um, that's, you know, it, it just makes it all the more obvious that a typical bland office space is just not right for the, for the way we live and, and, and work today. Um, and understanding that and understanding particularly how space is used is why I think we're in such an amazing um, point in, in the kind of prop tech uh, arena and the kind of fourth in industrial revolution and you know I think the generally accepted term of industry 4.0 is you know the kind of automation of traditional practices using smart tech so whether that's IoT sensors um, AI VR uh, which change the way we live and work because we all want more choice we all want to adapt so fundamental to that is understanding what we need and, and providing more of it in, in a better quality. And the only way you can do that is, is to understand how, how space is, is used. And that's, that's really the fundamentals of the, um, uh, the workspace analytics platform that we've uh, developed for the Flex Space Center. And then on our conversation, I just wondered, are there any books or podcasts or resources that you rely on for this kind of thing in order to kind of improve your knowledge and stuff? Um, there's a great book uh, that I think came out at the end of last year, Rethinking Real Estate by Draw Polek. Oh, yes, Draw, yeah. Which, uh, that's it, a great book, all right, yeah. It, it's fascinating. It covers every aspect of the real estate world um, and is probably the closest thing to a crystal ball. Uh, <laughs> I think that is, uh, that, that, that is a very good one. Um, but I think, you know, equally the last six months have proved extremely valuable in terms of the debate uh, that lots of commentators have had and, um, you know, I've certainly not used LinkedIn as much as I've done recently uh, to kind of be, be part of that debate and looking at different models, looking at different working practices. Um, and we'll see, we'll see what pans out because as we've seen throughout this pandemic, you know, there have been a lot of knee-jerk reactions. Uh, some things that people were predicting already on, on you know, proving to be the case. Um, so it's probably too early to, to tell, but I think, you know, what, what is for sure is that people will relish flexibility and, and, and choice 
um, people relish a much more agile way of working to kind of, you know, bring a bit of work-life balance. Well, I don't actually believe work-life balance exists. It's work-life integration. Uh, yes, um, I agree. Because it's not I've had balance. Usually something is out of balance, yeah. Yeah, it, 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 it's how we bring it together. Um, and I think really it, it's opened up the whole conversation because a lot of employers out there, um, they might have said they embrace flexible working, uh, but it was still very much the kind of command and control um, uh, environment. But what this pandemic has proved is that you know, people can work from home. I firmly believe, I think, as you were touching on, that people cannot be as productive as they are at home. People do rely on a workspace, and therefore that workspace now has to work really hard. It has to be the hub. It has to be a hub where people are attracted to, and so to be attracted to, it has to provide a great experience, uh, and in that space is the experience for people to collaborate, to innovate, to strategize, and particularly for different generations coming together, it, it's important. Um, you know, if you've been in your career for 10 years, of course you can work from home, but if you're young and coming into the workplace for the, for the very first time, you need mentoring, um, and that can't be done. Uh, at home you can't learn those skills which will become vital in in later life um so people do need to to get out they do need a creative inspirational place place to work and i think that is what the space as a service sector has done so well in the last few years and i think we'll continue to do very well in the time to come now i'm going to ask you a profound question adam <laughs> what is uh, what's the best advice that you've received during uh, during your career oh Things will always take longer and cost more money than you uh, than you intend, and I think um, you know anyone that kind of does does their own thing has to be optimistic by by nature. I think people, particularly in the real estate world, are optimistic because we take very big risks. Uh, you know, very much like the Romans, you know, build it and they will come. We take enormous risks, um, but we are dealing with a lot of things outside of uh, our, our control. So the advice I now give to myself is. You know, only worry about the things that you can control. If you're doing the best you can about the things that are within your control, um, then that should hopefully give you a degree of comfort. There's no point worrying about things that you just cannot do anything about. And if you were, if you had a, an opportunity to speak to yourself, um, your 20-year-old self, what advice would you give to that young Adam? Another, another great, great question. Um, I think. Uh, you have to learn and bring in different things from, from different sectors. You know, the, the world, the economy is so um, interlinked uh, these days that just, you know, being driven with a, a kind of, you know, really headstrong view of one particular sector isn't the best way uh, to do it. You've got to look at the influences. And I think um, that's certainly what I did in, in the early days of the clubhouse. And, and now, you know, I'm really excited about some of the prop tech solutions we're, we're bringing, uh, but it's, it's bringing different aspects from, from, from different sectors. Um, and I, I should have told myself that a long time ago, and that's the lesson I'm learning. Brilliant. Uh, Adam, thanks so much for coming on the podcast today. If people want to uh, connect with you or reach out, um, how is the best place to find you? Where is the best place to find you? Uh, LinkedIn is probably the best place. So just search for me on LinkedIn. Or you can drop me an email, adam at productive.partners. Uh, slightly different spelling, which is P-R-O-D-U-K-T-I-V to bring a bit of Vorsprung Deutsch technique into it. Uh, or the website. Technique. <laughs> well, I'll put, a, I'll put um, your email address and, uh, and your website and stuff like that in the show notes. 
uh, along with a link to the clubhouse so that people can actually see the business that you created um, prior to starting Productive Partners. Adam, it's been a great pleasure. Thank you so much for coming on and uh, I hope to speak to you soon. Devin, it's been, it's been great. Really enjoyed that conversation. All right, guys, I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Mr. Adam Blasky. Adam is now running a company called Productive Partners. And so if you go and check the show notes, I'm going to put a link to that and to the various things that you would have heard during today's episode. Um, guys, that's pretty much it. I'm um, it's, it's late on a Sunday night, as I mentioned, and so I'm not going to dwell too long on this. Just uh, look out for the show notes and then hopefully next week. Next week is going to be an episode with just myself and I'm going to be going into some interesting topics and I'm going to be kind of digging up some stories from my past. And uh, so hope you'll tune in for that. That'll be episode number 30, which I did not actually think that I would get around to publishing 30 episodes but it's good going well so far so that is it for episode 29 of behind the facade please again check out those show notes and um, i'd like just like to thank you all for listening my number one ask is if you did find this useful at all please consider leaving a review the reviews are absolute gold dust for me they get the the word out there they get more people to discover the podcast so it's the one thing you can do or you can just give it a five-star rating if you if you don't have time to write the review and all that if you have any questions again the behind the facade community is a great way to connect with me you can also connect on social media gavin j gallagher is my handle for pretty much everything i have you know twitter youtube i have instagram i have facebook so any of those things there if you want to connect with me that's the place to find me so guys until next week we shall talk to you very soon thank you